My dear brothers and sisters, on this beautiful Easter morning, prayers of gratitude for the life and mission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ fill the Sabbath air while strains of inspiring music comfort our hearts and whisper to our souls the ageless salutation, Peace be unto you. In a world where peace is such a universal quest, we sometimes wonder why violence walks our streets, accounts of murder and senseless killings fill the columns of our newspapers, and family quarrels and disputes mar the sanctity of the home and smother the tranquility of our lives. Perhaps we stray from the path which leads to peace and find it necessary to pause, to ponder, and to reflect on the teachings of the Prince of Peace and determine to incorporate them in our thoughts and our actions and to live a higher law, walk a more elevated road, and be a better disciple of Christ. The ravages of hunger in Somalia, the brutality of hate in Bosnia, and the ethnic struggles across the globe remind us that the peace we seek will not come without effort and determination. Anger, hatred, and contention are foes not easily subdued. These enemies inevitably leave in their destructive wake tears of sorrow, the pain of conflict, and the shattered hopes of what could have been. Their sphere of influence is not restricted to the battlefields of war, but can be observed altogether too frequently in the home, around the hearth, and within the heart. So soon do many forget, and so late do they remember, the counsel of the Lord. There shall be no disputations among you, for verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another, but this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. As we turn backward the clock of time, we recall that some 55 years ago, a desperately arranged peace, a conference of peace, convened in the Bavarian city of Munich. Leaders of the European powers assembled, even as the world tottered on the brink of war. Their purpose, openly stated, was to pursue a course which they felt would avert war and maintain peace. Mistrust, intrigue, a quest for power, doomed to failure that conference. The outcome was not peace in our time, but rather war and destruction to a degree not previously experienced. Overlooked or at least set aside was the hauntingly touching appeal of one who had fallen in an earlier war. He seemed to be writing in behalf of millions of comrades, friend and foe alike. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place, and in the sky the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Are we doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past? After such a brief interval of peace following World War I came the cataclysm of World War II. In fact, this June will mark the 50th anniversary of the famed landings of Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy. Tens of thousands of dignitaries and veterans 
will flock to the scene as the landings are reenacted. One writer observed, Lower Normandy has more than its share of hallowed dead. Their bodies lie in graves from Falais to Cherbourg. 13,796 Americans, 17,958 British, 8,658 Canadian, 650 Polish, and around 65,000 Germans, more than 106,000 dead in all. And that is just the military, all killed in the space of a summer holiday. Similar accounts could be written describing the terrible losses in other theaters of combat in that same conflict. The famed statesman William Gladstone described the formula for peace when he declared, We look forward to the time when the power of love will replace the love of power. Then will our world know the blessings of peace. World peace, though a lofty goal, is but an outgrowth of the personal peace each individual seeks to attain. I speak not of the peace promoted by man, but peace as promised of God. I speak of peace in our homes, peace in our hearts, even peace in our lives. Peace after the way of man is perishable. Peace after the manner of God will prevail. We're reminded that anger doesn't solve anything. It builds nothing, but it can destroy everything. The consequences of conflict are so devastating that we yearn for guidance, even a way to ensure our success as we seek the path to peace. What is the way to obtain such a universal blessing? Are there prerequisites? Let us remember that to obtain God's blessings, one must do God's bidding. May I suggest this morning three ideas to prompt our thinking and guide our footsteps. First, search inward. Second, reach outward. And third, look heavenward. First, search inward. Self-evaluation is always a difficult procedure. We're so frequently tempted to gloss over areas which demand correction and dwell endlessly on our individual strengths. President Ezra Taft Benson counsels us, The price of peace is righteousness. Men and nations may loudly proclaim, Peace, peace, but there shall be no peace until individuals nurture in their souls those principles of personal purity, integrity, and character which foster the development of peace. Peace cannot be imposed. It must come from the lives and hearts of men. There is no other way. Elder Richard L. Evans, who stood at this pulpit for many years on a weekly basis, observed, To find peace the peace within, the peace that passeth understanding. Men must live in honesty, honoring each other, honoring obligations, working willingly, loving and cherishing loved ones, serving and considering others with patience, with virtue, with faith and forbearance, with the assurance that life is for learning, for serving, for repenting and improving. And God be thanked for the blessed principles of repenting and improving, which is a way that is open to us all. Close quote. The place of parents in the home and the family is of vital importance as we examine our personal responsibilities in this regard. Recently, a distinguished group met in conference to examine the increase of violence in the lives of individuals, particularly the young. Some observations from their deliberations are helpful to us as we, you and I, examine our priorities. I quote, A society that views graphic violence as entertainment should not be surprised when senseless violence shatters the dreams of its youngest and brightest. 
Unemployment and despair can lead to desperation, but most people will not commit desperate acts if they have been taught that dignity, honesty, and integrity are more important than revenge or rage. If they understand that respect and kindness ultimately give one a better chance at success. The women of the Anti-Violence Summit have hit on the solution, the only one that can reverse a downward spiral of destructive behavior and senseless pain. The formula, a return to old-fashioned family values, will work wonders. So frequently, we mistakenly believe that our children need more things when in reality their silent pleadings are simply for more of our time. I submit that the accumulation of wealth or the multiplication of assets belie the Master's teaching when he counseled, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The other evening, I saw large masses of parents and children crossing an intersection in Salt Lake City en route to the Delta Center to see the Disney on Ice production of Beauty and the Beast. I actually pulled my car over to the curb to watch the gleeful throng. Fathers, who I am absolutely certain were cajoled into going to the event, <laughs> held tightly in their hands the small and clutching hands of their precious children. Here was love in action. Here was an unspoken sermon of caring. Here was a rearranging of time as a God-given priority. Truly, peace will reign triumphant when we improve ourselves after the pattern taught by the Lord. Then we will appreciate the deep spirituality hidden behind the simple words of a familiar song. There is beauty all around when there's love at home. Second, reach outward. Though exaltation is a personal matter, and while individuals are saved not as a group, but indeed as individuals, Yet one cannot live in a vacuum. Membership in the Church calls forth a determination to serve. A position of responsibility may not be of recognized importance, nor may the reward be broadly known. Service to be acceptable to the Savior must come from willing minds, ready hands, and pledged hearts. Occasionally, discouragement may darken our pathway. Frustration may be a constant companion. In our ears, there may sound the sophistry of Satan as he whispers, You cannot save the world. Your small efforts are meaningless. You haven't time to be concerned for others. Trusting in the Lord, let us turn our heads from such falsehoods and make certain our feet are firmly planted in the path of service and our hearts and souls dedicated to follow the example of the Lord. In moments when the light of resolution dims and when the heart grows faint, we can take comfort from His promise. Be not weary in well-doing. Out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. During the past year, the primary organization has conducted an effort to have the children become better acquainted with the holy temples of God. Frequently, this has entailed a visit to the temple grounds. The laughter of small children, the joy of unfettered youth, and the exuberance of energy displayed by them gladdened the heart of this observer. As a loving teacher guided a boy or a girl to the large door of the Salt Lake Temple and the little one reached out and up to touch the temple, I could almost see the Master welcoming the little children to his side, and could almost hear his comforting words, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Number three, look 
heavenward. As we do, we find it comforting and satisfying to communicate with our Heavenly Father through prayer that path to spiritual power, even a passport to peace. We're reminded of His beloved Son, the Prince of Peace, that pioneer who literally showed the way for others to follow. His divine plan can save us from the Babylons of sin, complacency, and error. His example points the way. When faced with temptation, He shunned it. When offered the world, He declined it. When asked for His life, He gave it. On one significant occasion, Jesus took a text from Isaiah, and I quote, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Close quote. A clear pronouncement of the peace that passeth all understanding. Frequently, my brothers and sisters, death comes as an intruder. It is an enemy that suddenly appears in the midst of life's feast, putting out its lights and its gaiety. Death lays its heavy hand upon those dear to us and at times leaves us baffled and wondering. In certain situations, as in great suffering and illness, death comes as an angel of mercy. But to those bereaved, the Master's promise of peace is the comforting balm which heals. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. How I pray that all who have loved, loved and lost, might know the reality of the resurrection and have the unshakable knowledge that families can be forever. One such was a Major Sullivan Ballou, who during the time of the American Civil War wrote a touching letter to his wife just one week before he was killed in the Battle of Bull Run. With me, Feel the love of his soul, his trust in God, his courage, his faith. Dated July 14, 1861. A letter to his wife. My very dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow, lest I should not be able to write again. I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt nor falter. I am perfectly willing to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me unresistibly on with all these chains to the battlefield. The memories of the blissful moments I have spent with you come creeping over me, and I feel most gratified to God and to you that I have enjoyed them so long. It is hard, hard for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years, when, God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our sons grow up to honorable manhood around us. I have, I know, but few and small claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me. Perhaps it is the wafted prayer of my little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you, and when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. 
Forgive me my faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless and foolish I have oftentimes been. How gladly would I wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness. But, O oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and the unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the gladdest days and in the darkest nights. Always, always. And if there be a soft breeze upon your cheek, it shall be my breath. As the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for thee, for we shall meet again. The darkness of death can ever be dispelled by the light of revealed truth. I am the resurrection and the life, spoke the Master. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Added to his own words are those of the angel, spoken to the weeping Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as they approach the tomb to care for the body of their Lord. Why seekest ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Such is the message of Easter morn. He lives, and because he lives, all shall indeed live again. This knowledge provides the peace for loved ones of those whose graves are marked by the crosses of Normandy, those hallowed resting places in Flanders fields where the poppies blow in springtime and for those who rest in countless other locations, including the depths of the mighty sea. Oh, sweet the joy this sentence gives. I know that my Redeemer lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I know that Bishop Edgeley joins me this day in expressing our appreciation for the many years of service we have had with Elder Hales. We deeply love and appreciate him, and he, we feel like we've been taught at his feet for a number of years. We look forward to laboring in service with Bishop Bateman. I was thrilled this morning, as I'm sure all of you were, to see and to hear President Hunter, a loving and gentle apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is an exceptional example of one who repeatedly displays extraordinary courage in hearkening to the will of his Father in Heaven. President Hunter has sons who served their missions in Australia at the same time I served there. During this time, President Hunter received his call to the Holy Apostleship. Numerous of these missionaries have regarded him as our apostle. He is one of my heroes. On this Sabbath day, a Sunday set aside to celebrate Easter, Christians should remember with thanksgiving the events surrounding the most momentous Sunday the world has ever known. The Sunday the Savior burst his three-day prison, completing victory over death. Descriptions of these events are vividly etched in my heart and mind. I can envision Jesus bearing the heavy crossbeam as the procession winds its way along the narrow streets of Jerusalem through the massive wall of the city gate to a place called Golgotha. I can hear women weeping and Jesus offering words of warning. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. The Savior knew destructive events would shortly come. In my mind's eye, I can see the executioners going about their abhorrent, heartless task. I can hear the Savior in the spirit of compassion, appealing for his crucifiers as he uttered, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As this brutal incident proceeded, 
One of the thieves also suffering crucifixion discerned something divine in the Savior's demeanor and said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus responded with a promise only he could make. Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Picture in your minds a weeping mother and a devoted disciple invited past the centurion to the foot of the cross. Jesus in his agony looked down upon them and said to Mary with an economy of words, Woman, behold thy son. And looking steadily at John said, Behold thy mother. Who can forget the pleading voice calling out at about the ninth hour through the oppressive darkness that gripped the land? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father seemingly withdrew, allowing the Savior of mankind to complete his victory over death and sin. I can imagine the bitter taste of the vinegar that was pressed to his lips when he said, I thirst, his one recorded response to physical suffering. When the atoning sacrifice had been accepted, Jesus declared in a loud voice, It is finished. And then in final petition, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. His body sagged on the cross. Jesus gave up his life. In the early morning darkness of the third day, Sunday, the first Easter, the earth began to quake. Angels rolled away the stone blocking the tomb and announced, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Later in the morning, the grieving Mary Magdalene returned to the cold, dreary, empty tomb. She heard a familiar voice call, Mary. Turning, she saw the Lord and reached out to him. In a worshipful greeting, she lovingly declared, Rabboni. Jesus responded, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father, and to my God and to your God. During the following 40 days, the Savior frequently taught and ate with his apostles. He concluded with the glorious charge, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus Christ is the magnificent example of courage in hearkening to the will of the Father. The wise psalmist said, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. President Thomas S. Monson explained courage by saying, Courage becomes a living and an attractive virtue when it is regarded not as a willingness to die manfully, but the determination to live decently. In Latter-day scriptures, the Lord often uses action words in the first sentences of his revelations. Interestingly, hearken is used a number of times in this fashion. We are counseled by the Lord through the prophet Joseph Smith to behold, to hearken, to listen, to hear in over 60 revelations. May I tell you about a young man who had the courage to hearken. Elder Marion D. Hanks introduced us to Jay nearly 20 years ago at General Conference. Elder Hanks described a 12-year-old deacon whose body suffered from muscular atrophy. His loving father carried him as he passed the sacrament, gathered fast offerings, and went about his scouting activities. The remainder of Jay's story exemplifies inspiration and courage. His body continued to suffer the ravages of his disease, while his mind continued to be inquisitive and very bright. Because of his disease, Jay was unable to attend high school, but rather had home study. He loved seminary and attended regularly. He was one of the speakers at his seminary graduation, addressing his classmates from his wheelchair. Jay's positive approach to life and his cheery, radiant disposition were uplifting. Jay loved to attend dances. He made his wheelchair dance. He enjoyed music and often sang the hymns of the Restoration in beautiful, clear, melodic tones. More than anything, Jay loved the Lord. 
When he turned 19, he wanted to hearken to the prophet's request that every young man serve a mission. By this time, Jay spent much of his time on a soft mat on the living room floor of his home. Much of the muscle tissue of his body had wasted away. He desperately wanted to serve a mission. He found a way to serve in spite of his handicap. While lying on his back on the floor, he painstakingly prepared, with the help of some friends, over 150 copies of the Book of Mormon with his picture and testimony. They were sent to friends serving missions around the world for distribution. Jay received a letter from President Kimball expressing gratitude for his service and courage in hearkening to the call to missionary service. Thanks to angel parents, Jay attended college. He was pushed by his dad from class to class. At times it was necessary for him to lie on a table at the rear of the classroom. He was an excellent student receiving distinguished grades and difficult courses. Jay passed away three years ago, but his splendid example of one who courageously hearkened lives on. Someone once said that the courageous man finds a way, the ordinary man finds an excuse. Recently, I learned of some courageous young people who hearkened to the council of their stake presidency. In the Boise, Idaho North Stake, a loving stake presidency helped their youth have a better understanding of the pitfalls of being continually bombarded by the degrading lyrics of many of today's popular songs and the indecent images portrayed in some movies and videos. They were taught these mediums can produce much that is positive, inspiring, uplifting, and attractive or they can also desensitize the mind and make what is wrong and evil look normal, exciting, and acceptable. Many of the young people hearkened to their stake presidency and courageously destroyed their tapes, discs, and videos, which were not virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. Young people, please don't listen to music that contains ideas that contradict principles of the gospel. Don't listen to music that promotes Satanism or other evil practices, encourages immorality, uses foul and abusive language, or drives away the spirit. Some may feel they are too intelligent or sophisticated to be influenced by the craftiness of Satan. What a tragic miscalculation. Nephi warns us of the perils of this misjudgment when he said, Oh, the cunning plan of the evil one. Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God. But to be learned is good if they hearken to the counsels of God. President Hinckley said, One of the great tragedies we witness almost daily is the tragedy of men of high aim and low achievement. Their motives are noble. Their proclaimed ambition is praiseworthy. Their capacity is great, but their discipline is weak. They succumb to indolence. Appetite robs them of will. Perhaps the greatest obstacle to our ability to hearken courageously to the word of the Lord involves our egos, vain ambitions, and pride. It seems that the proud find it burdensome to hear and accept the instruction of God. We are told in Proverbs that pride goeth before destruction. The proud are more anxious about man's judgment than they are of God's judgment. You may remember a story about a ship's captain who had a problem with his pride. One night at sea, this captain saw what looked like the light of another ship heading toward him. He had his signalman blink to the other ship, change your course 10 degrees south. The reply came, change your course 10 degrees north. The ship's captain answered, I am a captain. Change your course south. To which the reply came, Well, I am a seaman first class. Change your course north. This so infuriated the captain, he signaled back, I say change your course south. I am on a battleship. To which the reply came back, And I say change your course north. I am in a lighthouse. Like the captain, if we fail to modify our course and purge ourselves of pride, we may find ourselves shipwrecked upon the shoals of life, unable to courageously hearken to the beckonings 
of the Savior to come unto me. I like what Edgar A. Guest said in a few lines of his poem entitled Equipment. Two arms, two hands, two legs, two eyes, and brain to use if you would be wise. With this equipment they all began, so start for the top and say, I can. You are the handicap you must face. You are the one who must choose your place. You must say where you want to go, how much you will study the truth to know. God has equipped you for life, but he lets you decide what you want to be. Courage must come from the soul within. The man must furnish the will to win. So figure it out for yourself, my lad. You were born with all that the great have had. With your equipment, they all began. Get a hold of yourself and say, I can. May we all get a hold of ourselves, as Edgar Guest so beautifully suggests, and say, I can be courageous in hearkening to the invitation of the Lord. Live in such a way so that people who know you but don't know Christ will want to know Christ because they know you. In the holy name of him whose glorious resurrection and atoning sacrifice, I express my deepest appreciation for this Easter Sunday, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we've witnessed a miracle. So grateful for Elder Hunter, exhibiting who we should follow. To the deep sense of concern and inadequacy that I come to the pulpit today. For two days, two passages of scriptures have been coming, floating through my mind. One is Daniel chapter 2, and the other is the 54th chapter of Isaiah. Both of them related. Daniel 2 describes the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's interpretation of the stone cut out of the mountain in the last days, representing the kingdom that God sets up that will roll across the earth, crushing peacefully all nations, inviting all to come to Christ. Isaiah, in the 54th chapter, talks about the tent, which represents the gospel of Christ. He talks about it in the last days, the cords of the tent being stretched across the earth and stakes being planted in every land. We literally are seeing that fulfilled today. And as I've thought about those passages, I've thought about the awesome task of supporting the brethren in carrying the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, that being the responsibility of the presiding bishopric and all those who work with them. Because of that vision from Isaiah and Daniel, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, for your faith and prayers. I desire with all my heart to be a servant to these men and to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today I pay tribute to my wife. She stood beside me for 35 years. We moved 19 times in the first 20 years of her marriage. She thought she'd married an unstable man. But I pay tribute to her. I've marveled in the last eight months as she's worked by my side in the Asia North area. Weekend after weekend, we've gone to conferences, and I've watched as this little blonde-haired woman, among all these beautiful black-haired saints, has won their hearts over and over again. Uh, there have been crowds of women around her giving her hugs as we've left. She's a mother of seven children, a grandmother to 15. More importantly, she's my eternal companion. I'm grateful for her. May I close my testimony with a short story? A few months ago, Sister Bateman and I were in Japan, Fukuoka Mission, on a mission tour. 
The missionaries in Kumamoto introduced us to a young Japanese brother who had just joined the church and then told us how he had joined. He was from a non-Christian background. He'd met the missionaries. He was interested in the message. He liked the young men that were teaching him. But during the course of the lessons, he could not understand or feel the need for a Savior. The missionaries took him through the lessons, taught him about our Heavenly Father and Christ and the plan of salvation, but he didn't have a witness. The missionaries wondered what they should do and decided one day to show him a film, a church film that deals with the atonement. It's a film called The Bridge. The young man saw the film and was disturbed by it, went home, couldn't sleep all that night but still didn't have a witness. The next morning he went to work. He worked in an optician shop making eyeglasses. During the course of the day, an elderly woman came in. He remembered her coming in a few weeks before. She had broken her glasses. She needed a new pair. When she'd come in earlier, she didn't have enough money and had gone away to save more in order to buy some glasses. As she came in that day, she showed him again her spectacles, showed him the money that she now had, and he realized that she didn't have enough yet. But then a thought came to him, and he said, I have some money. I don't need to tell her, but I can make up the difference. And so he told her that the money she had was adequate took her glasses, sent her on her way, and made an appointment for her to return when he had finished making the spectacles. She returned later. He had the glasses ready for her. He handed them to her, and she put them on. Mimas, mimas. I see, I see. And she began to cry. At that point, a burning sensation came inside of the pit of his stomach, and it began to swell within him. And he said, Wakarimas, Wakarimas, I understand, I understand. And he began to cry. And out the door he ran, looking for the missionaries. And when he found them, he said, I see. My eyes have been opened. I know that Jesus is the Son of God. I know the stone was rolled away from the tomb. And that on a glorious Easter morning, he rose from the dead. And that he can make up the difference in my life when I fall short. I pledge my all, brothers and sisters, to the service of the Master. I have a deep testimony of him, of his work on this earth that he's the one who guides and directs the affairs of this church. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. I am delighted to be with you today and to greet this wonderful General Conference audience. In so doing, may I thank you for the prayers you offer in behalf of the general authorities, for our health, for our travel, and our personal circumstances. We are blessed by these faithful prayers offered, and we wish you to know know of our gratitude. One of the most important questions ever asked to mortal men was asked by the Son of God himself, the Savior of the world, to a group of disciples in the New World, a group anxious to be taught by him 
and even more anxious because he would soon be leaving them. He asked, What manner of men ought ye to be? Then in the same breath he gave this answer, Even as I am. The world is full of people who are willing to tell us, Do as I say. Surely we have no lack of advice givers on about every subject, but we have so few who are prepared to say, Do as I do. And of course, only one in human history could rightfully and properly make that declaration. History provides many examples of good men and women, but even the best of mortals are flawed in some way or another. None could serve as a perfect model nor as an infallible pattern to follow, however well-intentioned they might be. Only Christ can be our ideal, our bright and morning star. Only He can say without any reservation, Follow me, learn of me, do the things you have seen me do. Drink of my water and eat of my bread. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the law of the light. Look unto me, and ye shall live. Love one another as I have loved you. My, what a clear and resonant call! What certainty and example in a day of uncertainty and absence of example. We all miss President Ezra Taft Benson today and wish that he could address us. I wonder if I might pay a small tribute to him <clears throat> by quoting something he said from this pulpit on the subject of Christ's marvelous example. He said, and I add my own witness to its truth, nearly 2,000 years ago, a perfect man walked the earth, Jesus the Christ. In his life, all the virtues were lived and kept in perfect balance. He taught men truth that they might be free. His example and precepts provide the great standard the only sure way for all mankind. The light and life of the world. How grateful we should be that God sent His only begotten Son to earth to do at least two things that no other person could have done. The first task Christ did as a perfect, sinless Son was to redeem all mankind from the fall, providing an atonement for Adam's sin and for our own sins if we will accept and follow Him. The second great thing He did 
was to set a perfect example of right living, of kindness, and mercy, and compassion, in order that all of the rest of mankind may know how to live, know how to improve, and know how to become more godlike. Let us follow the Son of God in all ways and in all walks of life. Let us make him our exemplar and our guide. We should at every opportunity ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And then be more courageous to act upon the answer. We must follow Christ in the best sense of that word. We must be about his work as he was about his father's. We should try to be like him even as the primary children sing, try, try, try. To the extent that our mortal powers permit, we should make every effort to become like Christ, the one perfect and sinless example this world has ever seen. His beloved disciple John often said of Christ, We beheld his glory. They observed the Savior's perfect life as he worked and taught and prayed. So too ought we to behold his glory in every way we can. We must know Christ better than we know him. We must remember him more often than we remember him. We must serve him more valiantly than we serve him. We will drink water springing up unto eternal life and will eat the bread of life. What manner of men and women ought we to be? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.